Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Philippians. And if you do not have a Bible, go ahead and pull out your phone and you can just Google Philippians 1. And the first result will be a Bible. And you can just follow along there. If you don't have a a Bible app, uh, in your bulletin, you'll see the spelling of Philippians. It's kind of a unique... Bible word. And so uh, if you're here for the first time, thank you for being here. If you came to watch someone get baptized and you've never been to a church before, I applaud you. That takes a lot of courage to come and do something that's new for you. So we appreciate you being here, whether it's your first time with us or just your first time in a church at all. I know that that's difficult. I've talked to a lot of people that have tried to come and they said, I, I got to the parking lot and I was nervous and so I left, and the next week I did the same thing, and eventually I got up the courage to come inside, and once you're inside, it's fairly normal. We're mostly normal people. Most of us, most of us are normal people. We do take a few exceptions, but uh, Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into the, the book of Philippians here. Lord, we thank you for the people that you've uh, brought together today, the, the church that comes to collectively worship in your name, that we come together as a corporate body of Christ to pray and ask that you would not only bless the the preaching of your word, the proclamation, but that you would also give light to our feet as we seek to walk in your ways, to live according to the scripture as revealed to us in the Bible. Lord, we thank you for our missionaries around the world who are taking the same good news to a very different people different countries, different continents, different languages. We pray that you would bless their ministries and that they would see fruit from the work that they're doing and from the proclamation of the good news, that they would recognize that they have been sent out as heralds for the king and that they are simply to repeat the message given to us in scripture. Lord, we also thank you for the churches in Madeira that are also proclaiming your good news today. We thank you for Daniel Martinez, the pastor at 4th Street, and pray that as he preaches to the people that gather there, that that would be a blessing to them, that they would be uplifted and encouraged by your word, that they would see the truth of your scripture. And we pray the same for Mark Unger at First Southern Baptist, that they would, as a church, be edified by your word, that they would seek to make you the first and most important thing in their life. Lord, we also pray for Pastor Randy as he's in the hospital. We ask that you would heal him, Lord, that you would deliver him from uh, the things, the ailments, the the disease and the illness that is plaguing his body. Lord, that you would also give him a steadfastness and a steadiness, a faithfulness to you that even though he's suffering in body, that he would stay strong of mind and of heart. Lord, whether... uh, a day or a thousand days still to be lived for you, I pray that you would give him that strength to continue on in the the good news and continue on living a life for the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would use this book and our time together to encourage us that while we may suffer, that we suffer for you and that we suffer well for you. Thank you for the example that we have of Paul choosing to suffer well even when attacked. Pray that our suffering may 
end with those around us glorifying and praising the name of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, well, if you're there with me, we're in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start reading in verse 12, and if you opened your Bible app on Google for the first time, there's a chapter 1, it's the big number, and then there's a bunch of little numbers, those are the verses, you get down to number 12, and that's where we're going to start reading. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, it's the Apostle Paul, he's writing a letter to the people of Philippi, and he says this, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Now, Paul has had his fair share of what he calls that what has happened to me. So it's a simple phrase that means a lot because the things that have happened to Paul in his mind probably stretch back a ways. So Paul's probably considering what has happened to me to be his original arrest and imprisonment in Jerusalem. He was released and then arrested in Philippi. He was released, rearrested in Jerusalem. He was transferred to Caesarea. He was eventually released, rearrested in Jerusalem, sent to Rome. And in the midst of all these arrests, he also had two Roman governors who just decided to leave him in prison. Both of them said they were going to leave him in prison just so they could appease Paul's enemies. On top of being arrested a bunch of times, left in prison just so that some other people would be happy, Paul has also been accused of being a heretic. He's been accused of desecrating the temple. He's been accused of being a terrorist. And you can read all about this in Acts 21 through 25, where Paul kind of, or Luke, kind of recounts what's happened to Paul. So when we get to this passage and Paul says, I want you to know that what has happened to me includes all of those things. It includes the torture and the beating and the suffering and the trials. And it includes two different groups at two different times who tried to get Paul released just so they could set up an ambush and kill him. And all of this is related to Paul's crimes, which are no crime at all. Paul says in Acts 25 verse 8, he says, neither against the Jewish law nor the temple, nor Caesar have I sinned. And so Paul is saying that all of these things that have happened to me, I want you to know about them. And I want you to know about them because they have actually advanced the gospel, which in a sense is an irony because Paul is the missionary to the Gentiles. Jesus himself came to Paul and gave Paul a commission that Paul would take the good news that Jesus came and made a way for everyone to be forgiven of their sins, to have peace with God, to have that relationship with God reconciled, that Jesus came and offered that way on the cross. 
And now Jesus comes after he's been killed on the cross, buried and resurrected. He comes to Paul and he says, Paul, I have a very important job for you. You're going to take this truth to the people who are not Jewish. They don't know it and they don't believe it. And you're going to be the person that goes and takes it to them. And then this happens. That which has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, which does not make sense because Paul's whole mission to advance the gospel was to take it and go places. And now he's taking it and he's stuck in prison, after prison, after prison, after prison. And when he goes somewhere, he takes a trip and he comes back, he's arrested and put in prison. And that's what's shocking here, certainly to the Philippians and should be to us, that even though he has been sent and then arrested, it has actually advanced the gospel. We should ask why, because that doesn't make sense at the outset. Why would Paul being stopped from sharing the gospel actually advance the gospel? And he answers it for us in verse 13. Okay, it's 12, but I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. Here's the why and the how. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because of Christ. So the whole imperial guard, it might also say the praetorian guard, was like a special forces unit of the Roman military. The Roman military had their regular soldiers, and then they had the imperial guard. The imperial guard were the best of the soldiers. They were paid a lot more. They often lived with the Roman official that they were tasked with protecting. They would live there and have the luxury of living with these rich, important officials. They would also get bonuses when they would go out on a military conquest, and the house of their official would be lavished with more money and more praise and with more food and more riches. And these imperial guards got to take part in their boss's winnings. So the imperial guard was to us much like the secret service. They would protect, they would need to know intelligence. Their goal was to make sure that this Roman senator or whoever they protected did not die. And here Paul has a chance now to tell these important imperial guards all about Jesus. So what has happened to me being put in prison and being assigned special forces units to guard Paul has actually advanced the gospel because now he's been able to tell them that Jesus is alive, that you don't know a man named Jesus who was sent by God to forgive your sins by dying on the cross. He never would have had a chance to reach the imperial guard. And now, having been put in prison, it's actually advanced the gospel in a way that Paul never would have thought. This is a situation that you and I would avoid at any cost. If God told us, I want you to go somewhere and do something, and then we were put in prison, we would try to get out because God had told us to go somewhere and do something. But instead of just fussing and whining in prison like I would do about how God called me and I have to get out because I've got an important thing to do. Paul says, hey, do you know about Jesus? 
Do you know why in prison I'm rejoicing? I'm happy. I'm content to be here even though I didn't do anything. And he tells them the good news. And he tells them about Jesus so that the Praetorian Guard, the whole Imperial Guard, and everyone else knows that his imprisonment is because of Christ. You see, Paul knows that even in this bad situation, the silver lining is that God uses suffering to advance the gospel. Paul himself sees how God is taking his own suffering and advancing the gospel because and through Paul's suffering. It's not the first time that that's happened in the Bible. It's not the last time. This is a pattern of how God chooses to do things. God told Noah to build an ark. The people hated Noah, and they despised him. And God used Noah. Paul was in prison, and God used that to evangelize the guards. A man named Joseph was in prison a long time ago for something he didn't do in Egypt. God used that to deliver the people from their famine. Jesus was on the cross for something that they claimed he did, which was actually true, but not really even a crime. And they murdered him so that he could deliver us from our sins. God takes the suffering and uses it to advance the gospel. And that's the silver lining that Paul sees in his imprisonment. Another one is in verse 14. Paul says, most of the brothers, that's the other Christians that are around, most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. So Paul's saying, I'm in prison. All the other Christians know that I'm in prison just because I believe in Jesus and they see me and they're not scared anymore. They're willing to speak the word, that is the gospel, the good news, that Jesus is alive and has saved them from their sins, that they're not scared anymore because they've seen Paul. And what's the worst that they can do to Paul? So the brothers and the sisters and the other Christians are no longer afraid, but they're speaking the word fearlessly. Paul here, having been captured, now offers freedom in his captivity. God has used that what has happened to him to advance the gospel. And Paul's perspective on suffering is unique. He sees his suffering and he sees the difficulty and he sees the problems and he recognizes that this is just what God has put in front of him, that God has given him these opportunities to suffer and now Paul is saying, I'm doing what God has called me to do, which is difficult for us. It's difficult to say, here's what God has put in front of me. Here is my suffering and to walk in it, to continue moving forward. Because we all have circumstances. We could all tell stories that Paul would say, I want you to know that what has happened to me we all have those, right? The, what has happened to me it might be different. It might not be imprisonment, but we've all had physical sicknesses. We've all had relationship problems. We've all had a lot of difficult things. 
loss of a wife, a husband, children, parents, jobs, financial problems. I mean, you can name it. We've all had things that we could explain in a story and say, well, you know, that thing, those things that have happened to me. But most often, our inclination would be to use it to justify, like, I can't do something because of what has happened to me. And Paul's saying, what has happened to me, a bad thing, I just see it as a good thing. I'm just choosing to say, I don't know why. God called me. Jesus himself said, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. I don't know why I'm here, but that's okay. I choose to suffer and ultimately rejoice because God is sovereign and God is in control of all things. And this is where God has me. So Paul's perspective is God may be using this suffering to continue to advance the gospel. It's easy for us to try to get out of suffering, though. We don't like suffering. We don't want suffering. And a lot of people come to Jesus for the first time, repent of their sins, and they trust Jesus for their eternal life. And they want everything to be better. I want all my problems to go away. I want all the suffering to end. And that doesn't happen. Jesus said, you will have suffering in this world. It's part of being alive. But our reaction to it and our response to that suffering is what can push people away or draw people to Christ. That's what Paul's saying in verse 14. The brothers have gained confidence from my imprisonment. They see Paul as an encouragement, and they look at Paul and they say, you know, if Paul can endure that suffering, I can endure that suffering. I can live like Paul's living and also do what Paul's doing. I think the question that I really like here is coming up in the next section because, you know, if Paul's perspective is teaching us a biblical and a godly way to see things, Paul's situation only gets worse, but his perspective doesn't change. Look at verse 15. Paul says, to be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. So Paul's saying, not only am I in prison, but on top of that, there are these people who are preaching the gospel because of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. There are others who preach it out of goodwill and who preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So they're trying to support Paul. But while he's in prison, there are these people who are saying, well, you know what? Jesus did die for your sins. That's true. They have a true gospel. But you know that guy, Paul? He's not quite what he said. I wouldn't believe Paul. 
Yeah, what he said is true for the most part, but you got to watch that guy, Paul. And these people preaching out of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition are trying to gain the status that Paul has, trying to gain the following, gain the acceptance. They're trying to take what Paul has for themselves. A true gospel, but selfish motives. And their whole point is that they're trying to hurt Paul while he's in prison. Not sincerely preaching, verse 17, but instead thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. The true gospel, but with the intention to cause Paul harm. That's a bad thing, but done for the right reasons. The The right thing, wrong thing, no, the right thing for the wrong reasons. Yeah, there we go. The right thing, preaching the right gospel, but their intentions are all wrong. Their motives are that they would gain and Paul would be hurt. So here comes the question that Paul asks rhetorically. Verse 18, what does it matter? I would say to me, it matters a whole lot. All right, people are out here saying slanderous things and trying to detract from whatever, and they're trying to hurt me, it matters to me. And Paul's saying, but what does it matter? So it makes me question, what does it matter? And Paul's saying, it doesn't ultimately matter because what does matter is not my pride, not my following, not my success. Paul's saying, I don't care about me. What does matter Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, verse 18, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. So Paul answers his own question. What does it matter that they're slandering me? If they're preaching Christ, then I couldn't care less what they're saying about me. See, Paul's perspective on his suffering is that it's okay because they're still leading people to Jesus. And I don't care what they say about me if they're leading people to Jesus. Paul doesn't name their names. He doesn't warn the Philippian people to stay away from them. He just says they're leading people to Jesus. And that's the ultimate goal. What does it matter? That they would be led to Jesus. The Bible says not to walk in the flesh, but to walk by the Spirit. That's the difference here in my hurt pride, I would be walking by the flesh, doing what feels most natural to me. And Paul's warning against that. Don't live by the flesh, but see it differently. See it from God's perspective and walk by the Spirit. They're doing the right thing by leading people to Christ, so let it go. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 4, I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's the same thing that Paul's saying is, they are my enemies. They're trying to hurt me. They're doing me wrong. But instead of trying to hurt them, we're going to move on because we both have the same goal. And this is the kind of situation that God uses to advance the gospel to put Paul in prison for the advancement of the gospel, to bring these people to Paul who are trying to take away 
to advance the gospel. To have Paul write this letter that we can read it and see that our goal is to advance the gospel. Because when we choose to take the high road, the godly way of responding to our persecution or our struggles, when we choose to forgive, we show others that God is a forgiving God. When we choose to show mercy, we show that God was first a merciful God. When we choose to respond to false accusations, certainly like Paul had many of, we show that the peace that Jesus promised that surpasses all understanding is a strange thing that I don't have to defend myself because I'm at peace and I can just let the Lord fight that battle. Often Paul here, you know, he ends this little part and he he says in, in this, I rejoice. When we take a situation that is blatantly bad and wrong and we don't respond to it in that same way and instead we rejoice, we're offering a beautifully confusing picture to the world that does not understand. Jesus said that you will, they will know you by your love, that you will look different, that things will not make sense because you don't have your selfish and fleshly mind, but you have the mind of Christ, that you don't live for yourself, but you walk by the Spirit. So I think 18 is, it's a great question because ultimately, what does it matter? If you take it all the way out, what does it matter? If the gospel advances because we are attacked, then let us be attacked and find joy in it. That's Paul's ultimate picture here. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Whether I'm attacked and whether it's right or wrong or false motives or true motives, I'm going to rejoice not in the attack, but in that Christ is being lifted up, in that Christ is being proclaimed. These people are not doing it right, but Christ is being proclaimed. And Paul's saying, for that, I can choose to rejoice. And so when we face those situations, when we face situations that we suffer, if the gospel can be preached, then let us rejoice in that. That's what Paul is saying actually matters. Not me, not my pride, not my self-worth, not the value that I perceive to deserve, but that Christ is crucified and preached and told fearlessly. And in that is where Paul finds the reason to rejoice. Now at this point in the middle of verse 18, Paul kind of transitions in his mind a little bit, and he, he goes from what has happened, you know, what has happened to me, and what is happening presently, and he kind of pauses that, and he starts to look forward. So yes, all of these things have happened. I've been persecuted. I've been arrested. I've suffered. I am suffering. But now let's look at what Paul's looking at in the future, starting at the end of verse 18. Yes, I will continue 
to rejoice. Because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul starts with, I will continue to rejoice. I've been rejoicing, I am rejoicing, and I will continue to rejoice. Because, verse 19, I know this will lead to my salvation. Salvation, the word here is the same as deliverance. It's the same as vindication. Salvation just means to be saved. Deliverance means to be delivered. Vindication means to be vindicated. But all from something. What am I saved from, delivered from, vindicated from? And most of the time, we're talking either physical salvation, physically being delivered, or spiritual. And in this case, I think we can look at it and say, Paul is certainly suffering physically. So is Paul talking about his physical deliverance? Verse 19, my rejoicing, because I know that this will lead to my salvation, my deliverance. Is Paul saying I'll be delivered physically? Or is Paul saying I'll be delivered spiritually? Like this will lead to my eternal salvation. And I think depending on the context, we would most likely read that Paul is talking about his spiritual salvation. The next couple of verses and on, Paul talks about his death. He says, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. He says, it's better to me for me to depart, to die, than it is to be here. So I don't think Paul has much of an expectation that he's going to physically be saved or physically be delivered. I think Paul's talking here about a spiritual salvation, that his hope, his eager expectation and hope is that he would not be ashamed, that he would stand firm with courage, whether it's in life or in death. So I think that that is what Paul's looking at, that I know that my rejoicing and my standing firm with courage, not being ashamed, that I'll be vindicated. That the Lord, the one true righteous judge, when I stand before him and the Lord judges, he will see that I'm right. I've done nothing wrong. A whole nother reason that Paul doesn't have to fight his own battles. He doesn't care what Caesar might say. He doesn't care what the local courts might say. Paul knows that one day I will stand before someone who can truly judge me, and that's where I want to focus. I want my focus not to be on my physical deliverance, to be saved out of jail, but that one day when I stand before God, he will say, well done, Paul. That I will have that spiritual salvation, that spiritual deliverance. When I was reading this, I thought of a part of the book of Job that I really like. Paul says, I know this will lead to my salvation. I'm going to flip back to Job 13. We'll end here. But this idea of suffering well, Paul and Job have a lot of similarities. In the book of Job, Job suffers for nothing that he had done wrong. 
and his friends come to him and tell him, Job, you've sinned, obviously. Look at all these things that are happening to you. God's mad at you. Do something about it. Tell God you're sorry. Repent. Maybe you can just die. They're not the best friends, but sometimes you just have what you have. But they tell him, like, Job, clearly, like, we can see a lot of evidence that God is really mad at you because of your sin. And here's Job's response in, verse, in Job 13, verses 15 and 16. Job says, even if he kills me, that is God, I will hope in him. I will still defend my ways before him. Yes, this will result in my deliverance. For no godless person can appear before him. You see, Job and Paul have a few different similarities here. Both are suffering in an undeserving way. Job didn't do anything wrong. Paul says, I'm not doing anything wrong. Job is saying, even if I die and God kills me, I'll still defend my ways to him. Like I'll stand before God and tell God, I didn't do anything wrong. And Paul's saying, whether by life or by death, this will lead to my salvation, that I'll have courage, that I won't be ashamed about anything. Though I'm suffering, I'm not deserving of it. I've not done anything wrong. They both also have an expectation of deliverance. Job says, yes, this will result in my deliverance. And Paul says, because I know that this will lead to my salvation or my deliverance. I think Paul's quoting Job here because he continues on with the same idea of life and death, just like Job did when Job says, even if he kills me, I still hope in him. Paul's saying, living is Christ, dying is gain. Whatever happens, I have an expectation of being delivered. But that expectation isn't physical because they both have an eternal hope, a spiritual hope. That's what Paul's saying is that my hope is an expectation of what is to come. That when judged by God, I expect to be found innocent before him. And Job says, this will result in my deliverance for no godless person can appear before him. Job is expecting that he will stand before God where no godless person will stand. And Job will defend his ways and say, God, I've done it your way and I've lived your way. And then both Job and Paul are a testimony to others. Job to his godless friends that are telling him, just admit it and die. And Paul to the people that are envious and rivalrous and preaching out of selfish ambition, they're both saying by their lives and by their response to suffering that I don't care about what you're saying. I care that Christ is preached. I care that God, in Job's case, looks at me and says, you've done it well. And that's what Paul wants. That's what Paul's saying is my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Because what they both know and what they both believe is that whether living or whether dying, God remains in control. Whether the suffering is deserved or not deserved, God remains in control. 
Whether the attacks are right or wrong, God remains in control. And to Paul, he'll add that I will rejoice in them. But that's not my first thought. My first thought is not to accept it all and to take it all and rejoice, which is the beauty of why we have this scripture from God, so that we can replace our poor thinking with the way that God wants us to think. How would you respond? How would you respond if you were already in prison and you were being transferred from one prison to another and and you heard that people had set up an ambush on the freeway and just you being in prison isn't enough. They're also trying to kill you. Or these people that you had shared the good news with and you had led to Christ and prayed with them and encouraged them and walked alongside them, that they have turned on you and are saying all kinds of things about you. Do you just forgive and be like, hey, that's cool. No big deal. It's fine that they want to kill me. It's fine that they hate me and that they're slandering me. To God be the glory. I'm happy and I can rejoice in that. That's the godly perspective, but that's not easy. You know, we want to defend and, you know, when we go through our darkest valleys and our, our, the worst times in our life, we don't want to just say, come what may, I'll rejoice in all of these things. You know, for us, we, we always want to seek something, to reach for help, to get an answer. We can't, maybe I'll speak for myself, I can't just find contentment a lot of times. It's hard to take the bad and just be okay with it and just say, hey, this is what the Lord has brought and I'll rejoice in whatever it is. Okay, I'm broke and I can't pay rent. Hey, that's what God has brought to me. That's hard to do. It's hard to do because we want answers and we want help and we want something to alleviate our pain. We want something to help, but we don't want to just say to the Lord, this is what you have. This will be my help. You are enough for me. And so we grasp at things and we try to find things and we look for answers and excessive research and we look for narcotics and we look for staying busy and we look for people to fix us and we look and we look and we look and we grasp and we grasp and we try to find something that will help fill the void that we feel. And there is nothing that fills the void except Christ. Have you searched and searched trying to find something that would fix you, that would heal the pain? There's no concoction of cocktails that will ever fix it. There's no natural or unnatural ways of fixing it. The only way to find help is to come to Jesus.
God knew that we as sinful people needed help. And God saw it fit in his kindness to us to send Jesus to earth, that Jesus would live a perfect life and willingly die on the cross. And by dying on the cross, take all of our sin and pay for it. We owed a debt to God. All of the things that we've done, we owe a penance for that. We owe a debt for that sin. But Jesus came and he said, I'll take it. And then tomorrow I sin. Like I got that one too. And tomorrow and tomorrow and on and on. And Jesus says again and again, I got that. I got that too. Next week, I got that. And all God asks of us is to look to Jesus and look to the cross, to lift our eyes out of the valley and up to the cross and say, will you forgive me? I've offended you. You've made a way. Will you forgive me for my sins? Help me to live a life that is rejoicing in my suffering, that looks not at myself, but looks toward Christ who is proclaimed and said, you know what? At least Jesus is being preached. I can take the suffering. I can take because Jesus is being preached. If you've never looked and turned your life to Christ, if you've never said yes to what God is calling you to do, and if you're done trying to fill your life with all kinds of things that will never actually satisfy, and you want something that will satisfy, I give you Jesus, the only hope of mankind, the only way by which we must be saved, the only thing that when we stand before God in judgment, as Paul and Job and others have said, the only defense of my sin is Jesus. And he offers that to you at no cost, no easy payments of $39.95. It's just free. You don't have to do anything. But the rejoicing is, when you do that and you say to the Lord, yes, you'll rejoice in your suffering because you care more about Others, you care more about seeing their lives changed for the Lord too. We'll have our prayer partners kind of in the back here. If you want to pray with somebody, if you've never given your life to the Lord, you don't have to come up and pray. I'll be up here. You're welcome to. You can just sit and talk to God. You can go home tonight. You can lay in bed, and I hope you lay awake until you think about it. And you can just pray. God, I don't know what I'm doing. Like many people have prayed, my wife included, my life's a mess. If you can take it and make something of it, I'll let you have it. And the Lord will, with an honest heart, take your life and make something of it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for this, these words from Paul. Lord, we know that we are 
We are prone to self-defense. We are prone to, to fight back. But Lord, may we be more likely to fight for your good name, fight for the salvation of others. As Paul said, to urgently plead. Lord, we pray that you would give your gift of salvation to the people that are here today that don't have it. Lord, that they would know that there's nothing that they're ever gonna do that's gonna satisfy Nothing that's ever going to bring joy, a happiness that lasts. And as they go from thing to thing and bouncing from one temporary pleasure to another, that they would finally just stop and let you have their lives. Lord, for us that have done that, may you give us this word as encouragement that our lives can be an example that our suffering can be an example, that when people see us faithful through suffering, committed to you even when the worst happens, not knowing why, but understanding that you are still in control, Lord, may that be our testimony as it was of Job and as it was of Paul, or that we might be good examples. And when asked for the reason that we have hope, that we might tell them that Christ has given me eternal hope and an eternal encouragement. Lord, help us to stand firm. Help us to have all courage. Help us to never be ashamed, whether by life or by death, awaiting that final day when Christ returns and we can be with you forever. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.